Genesis chapter 33, verse 18, down to the end of chapter 34. Genesis 33, 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padanaram. And he camped before the city. And, and the sons of Hamar, and from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And Shechem, the son of Hamar the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to her father, Hamar, Hamar saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were in the, with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamar, Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to, to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for a great bride price and gift as you, as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition we will agree with you, that you will become as we are, and every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take our daughters, take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamar and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was one of the most he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. 
On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our, daughter, our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we see things here that are vile. We see things here that are reprehensible. We see things here that are exceedingly sinful. We see sinful people reacting sinfully to sin. Lord, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to see and to understand this passage and, Lord, to apply it rightly to our own lives. You would help us to see our sin. You would help us to see our only hope in the midst of our sin. We pray this for your glory and for the building of your church. Amen. Back in the day when you went to see a drama in the movies, there was a clear villain and there was a clear hero. But those days seem to have passed us by. Sure, you still have the villain and there might be some heroics involved in, in the defeat of the villain, but the hero in many of the things you would see in the movies these days are more of an anti-hero. Someone with, with, with rough edges, a character who, who lacks bravery, courage, morality, or, or, or the motivation for the, for the greater good. But through it all, it's, it's often likely, he's often a, a likable character who somehow draws our, our empathy or our sympathy. Think Clint Eastwood in The, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Or Harrison Ford in, in Star Wars. Or Robert De Niro and Al Pacino in just about anything. Now those characters have their likable qualities. But if we look at Genesis 34 on its own, there, there are no heroes. There aren't even anti-heroes. In fact, all of the characters here look like villains. Everyone looks bad. There seems to be nothing in chapter 34 that's commendable. There are no prayers, there's no divine revelations, there's no mention of blessings. In fact, if it weren't for the last few verses of, of chapter 33 that are included as an introduction to this narrative, there would be nothing good to say about any of the characters at all. There wouldn't even be men any mention of God in this passage. After the conflict between Jacob and Esau was resolved, it was resolved in chapter 33, Jacob, who has been now renamed Israel, has shown spiritual growth. But Moses, the narrator, now shows us more of Israel's sin 
and the depravity of Israel's sons, whose behavior in this chapter is even worse than that of their pagan neighbors. Deception and treachery rule the day with catastrophic results. So in this passage, we see how the, the fathers of the nation of Israel are going to commit the sins of their father, Israel, and worse. This drama unfolds through a series of, of interactions as tension mounts. Chapter 34 begins with a moral atrocity, but ends with even worse wanton destruction. But before this takes place, there's a, a, a telling event at the end of chapter 33 that sets the scene for what's about to take place. So chapter 33, verses 18 to 20, Jacob arrives at Shechem. Here we see in, in verse 18, Jacob's journey, despite the threats of Laban and the threats of Esau, ends safely in Shechem. So, so Jacob has, has now arrived safely back in the promised land after 20 years absent in Padanaram. Now he is described here as, as arriving safely or peacefully. The Hebrew word that is used here is, is shalom. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept, but the shalom isn't going to last. Verse 19. We hear the name Hamor and Shechem. These are the, the, the chief antagonists of this story, especially Shechem, as we'll see in a moment. As Jacob now purchases land from the sons of Hamor in the city of Shechem. Now, this is a big problem. Jacob's journey shouldn't have ended in Shechem. It shouldn't have ended there. The Lord had commanded him to go to Bethel about a day further. We don't know why, but, but he had stopped short. Something has waylaid him. Something has kept him from obeying all the way. And we tell our children that they are to obey, obey right away, all the way, in a happy way. A failure to do any one of those is disobedience. Jacob is being disobedient, and his disobedience will have a hefty cost. There are going to be tragic consequences for Jacob and for his neighbors. Wonder, have you ever tried to obey God part way? Now, I'm not asking about whether you've tried to obey God fully and failed. We all do that. None of us has ever obeyed perfectly. Only Jesus Christ has obeyed God perfectly. I'm not talking about trying and failing. I'm talking about not even trying. I'm talking, have you ever, have you ever tried to, to compromise with God and say, okay, well, I'll obey part of the way. If you're trying to compromise with God like that, you're not compromising with God. You're compromising with sin. You're compromising with sin. You know what God wants you to do. You know where God wants you to go. But you intentionally stop before you get there. Is there any area in your life where you're doing that right now? Trying to, to compromise with God, but in fact you're compromising with sin. You're settling in Shechem. You're on dangerous ground and your disobedience will have consequences. But nonetheless, all is not lost. If you look at the last verse of chapter 33, Jacob erects an altar there. He names it El Eloi Israel, which means God is the God of Israel. Now, I don't think this is willful hypocrisy. 
Israel stumbles here and, and, and is about to stumble again, but, but he's saying here that God is his God, that God is his God. God has graciously cared for him during his 20-year sojourn in Padanaram, and he now brought him safely home, at least most of the way home. God has providentially superintended his journey for the past 20 years as, as he had appeared to him before he left the promised land at Bethel and then he appeared to him and wrestled with him at, at Penuel. God was even here with him in Shechem. But with the end of, of chapter 33, God seems to have departed from Jacob's consciousness and from the consciousness of any of the characters of the story. And then in chapter 34, verses 1 to 4, Dana, Dinah is defiled. The chapter opens with Dinah, the daughter of Jacob and Leah. Considerable time seems to have passed since the events that we discussed last week. Dinah had been a child of around seven years old when they had left Padanaram, and, and some time seems to have passed. She's now likely a teenager. And she went out to see the women of the land the Canaanite women, and this was unwise at best. She shouldn't have even gone out among the Canaanites, let alone she should not have done it by herself. But nonetheless, she is not to blame whatsoever for what is about to take place. Verse 2, When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Four abrupt words. He saw her, seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. He raped her. Now, although some commentators suggest that something less serious had actually taken place here, that these words that are translated lay with and humiliated are the same words used in 2 Samuel 13, 14 to describe Amnon's rape of his, of his half-sister Tamar. And the same verb translated humiliated that's used here is used in Genesis 15, 13 to describe Israel's affliction in a foreign land for 400 years. What has taken place here is appalling. This is an appalling sin. But then somehow in verse 3, Shechem's attitude towards Dinah changes says that, that his soul is drawn to her, that he, he loves her. Now this behavior is diametrically opposed to, to what he has just done, to his behavior earlier, and it's also diametrically opposed to the attitude of Amnon to Tamar. After he defiles her, Amnon is disgusted with Tamar. This, this change of attitude doesn't do anything to, to undo or to mitigate the viciousness of his sin against her. Just because he's nice to her afterwards doesn't change the fact of what he's just done. But it does compel him to go to his father saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now there's another detail that's not clear here, but that the context reveals later that, that she was still in Shechem's house. After these events take place, you know, in my mind, as I picture the story, I pictured her coming home crying and telling her father what had happened, but, but she was still in the home of the one who defiled her. I can't even imagine. But then in verses 5 to 7, Jacob and his sons find out. Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah. 
Fathers, what would you do if such news came to you? I don't want to stir up pain or, or fear or fury in your heart, but I want you to consider what would be a normal response to such news. To consider what would be a righteous response to such news. I also want you to examine your heart to whether your response would be righteous to such news. What does Jacob do? He does nothing. He does nothing. He says nothing until his sons come into the field. His reaction is, is bizarre at best. Why does he not express outrage over the wrong that has been done to his daughter? Leads us to wonder, what would he have done if this had been a daughter of Rachel? He's already shown a, a willingness to sacrifice Leah and her children in preference for Rachel and Joseph. What would he have done if this had been a daughter of his beloved wife, Rachel? We're, we're left wondering. It would have been entirely appropriate for him to be angry. There are things to get angry about. And the rape of a daughter is one of those things. God is angry at things like this. God is angry at sin. Yet we're told in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. Anger becomes sinful when it is expressed over the wrong things and in the wrong measure. We, we should get angry over things that God gets angry at. Jacob's apparent lack of anger is, is wrong too. We're supposed to get angry at sin, especially our own sin. J. Adams speaks of, of two wrong expressions of anger, blowing up and clamming up. Adams des describes the first as Mount, Ves Mount Vesuvius, violently exploding and sending clouds of, of ash and, and poisonous gas out to consume and destroy life for miles around. We're going to see this kind of anger displayed in Jacob's sons. But the other type of anger is, is like a volcanic eruption as well, but a, a different type of eruption. Do you remember the videos that were coming out of Hawaii last year from, from Mount Kilauea as that, that volcano spewed forth lava? It, it was just as destructive, but, but the lava crept out slowly, inching forwards, destroying everything in its path. These are two types of anger, people who have violent outbursts and the people who, who turn it inwards and seethe inwardly. Two kinds of anger, and I'm sure at times you've probably exhibited one or the other. I remember a situation in, in which I had to tell a father that his daughter had been shamefully treated by a young man. And I was sitting across from, from these two men, and I'll never forget what that girl's father said. He said, as a father, I want to choke you. But the grace of God is standing between you and me. Now, thankfully, he didn't harm that young man, but as time went on, it became apparent that he really was choking that young man. Not outwardly, but inwardly. He was seething in his heart, breeding bitterness and unforgiveness. Could this be what was happening in Jacob's heart? 
Of course, we can't know for sure because the Bible doesn't, doesn't tell us, but it would be a plausible explanation for, for Jacob's lack of response. But the narrative does tell us something that, that, that at least influenced his, his lack of response here. Fear. Fear. Jacob had already demonstrated repeatedly that he is motivated by fear. And he's going to be motivated by fear again later in this chapter. He tells us that he's afraid of the people of the, of the region. But now as Hamor and Shechem go to talk to Jacob and Jacob's sons, to find out what, what's taken place, these, these, the brothers of Dinah, Jacob's sons, I- exhibit the, the kind of response we'd accept. Like we'd expect. They're, they're, they're indignant. They're, they're very angry. At this point, they haven't done anything wrong. In fact, their, their anger seems to be righteously motivated. Look at the end of verse 7. They were angry because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. It seems that they realized that they were set apart from the unbelievers around them and that they were different and that this behavior was morally unacceptable. At this point, it would be right for them to seek to execute justice. It would be the right thing for them to do. It would be entirely appropriate for them to go to Shechem's house and forcibly remove Dinah and then to execute justice on Shechem. But will they respond? In the measure that God calls for, are, are, they, are they going to take it further? W- would their anger remain righteous? Or, or would it be a Mount Vesuvius that was, it was just beginning to rumble? The whole time, Jacob was silent. Jacob is beginning to fade into the background of the narrative, and his sons are starting to take center stage. I wonder, do you get sinfully angry? Is your anger like a Mount Vesuvius or Mount Kilauea? Do you blow your top or is it more of a slow burn? Do you get angry at the things that you shouldn't? Sinful anger is, is really a helpful diagnostic tool to help you to reveal idols in your heart. Now, one definition of an idol is something that you will sin to get or sin when you don't get. When you, when you get angry about the things that you shouldn't, an idol is being exposed. Do you see that? If, if, if something, nothing can make you angry. Do you understand, you understand that, right? There's, all that happens is the circumstances of life become the, the catalyst to reveal the anger that's already in your heart. Mount Kilauea was already a volcano. Just the, the geological conditions created the, the environment for it to blow up. Do, do you, so do you get angry at, at, about things that you shouldn't get angry about? Or, or do you not get angry about the things that you should? That could be an idol too. and It revealed an idol of self-protection or of, or of love of comfort and, and ease. Or when you get angry, do you express your anger in the right measure? Again, excess anger also reveals an idol, righteousness and and self-reliance. And through it all, we see that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The circumstances in in which you get angry, you might be responding to, to, to actual sin, but are you responding sinfully to sin? 
What, what God is, is calling you to be in, the, in those circumstances when someone around you is, is behaving sinfully is, is to, to bring the righteousness of God into that situation. But what happens is when, when you get sinfully angry, you're taking yourself out of the situation. You're making yourself part of the problem instead of part of the solution. Now, I'm, I, I can, I'm preaching to myself here too. That This is the reality to, to a certain extent for all of us. So let's see what, what kind of anger is, is going to be displayed here. Verses 8 to 12. Hamor negotiates. Hamor explains that, that his son longs for your daughter, we're told. Now the word your here is actually plural, indicating that, that he is now addressing the whole group. Jacob and his sons. And he asks them to give Dinah as Shechem's wife. He asks them to, to intermarry with them and to, to dwell with them. And he, he, he generally offers to open the land to them to, to dwell in and to trade in, to, to purchase property in. And he conveniently leaves out any reference to, to the, the immorality, to the rape that has taken place. And he also conveniently hides his true motivation. As is going to become clear, Hamor was double dealing. Hamor had no intention of an economic partnership. He didn't just want their daughter, he wanted their stuff. Ligon Duncan tells us that, that as grotesque as it sounds to our ears, rape was apparently one strategy that was frequently employed in the ancient Near East in order to force a family into a marriage contract. In a situation parallel to this one, when, when, a, when a rape has taken place, they say, well, well now you're, you're your daughter has been defiled with my son, and so you have to get married. And it would force somebody into to making an economic partnership, a deal. But Hamar is now unwittingly adding fuel to the fire. He continues in verses 11 and 12, saying to Dinah's father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. He's willing to pay any bride price. But this only angered the brothers further. He wanted to pay for Dinah. He wanted to pay for Dinah, and as we'll see later, they, were, he was, they viewed it as, as him calling their sister a prostitute. He's willing to pay any price. But he had no idea just how great that price would be. This offer presents a, a real threat to Jacob and his sons. Jacob's already compromised by settling here when he's supposed to continue to Bethel. Like Lot, who settled in Sodom and intermingled with its wicked inhabitants, Jacob seems well on his way down that road. If he allows intermarriage with the Canaanites, the journey will be complete. Would have to be delivered by God and, and at what cost? Remember the lessons that we learned from Lot. Are you comfortable in the world? Do the things of the world appeal to you? Are you being deceived by the world's charms? Are you becoming like the world? You're, war you're warned repeatedly in Scripture to come out and be separate from the world. Now we'll see the response of Jacob's sons in verses 13 to 17. They deceive. You'll see now Jacob is completely out of the picture. Jacob's sons are now the chief negotiators. 
So they replied in, in verses 14 to 17, I'll read it for you. We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that will be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition we will agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. So you can see from that that she's, she's actually still there dwelling in Shechem's house. Now on the face of it, it sounds like a good deal. They're agreeing to give Dinah and, and all of their daughters in marriage and all it's going to cost them is a bit of skin. But we're given insider information in verse 13 that they're answering Shechem and Hamor, Hamor deceitfully because Shechem had defiled Dinah. The whole thing is a scam. They're following in the deceitful footsteps of their father who manipulated Esau to get the birthright and deceived Isaac to get the blessing. We're meant to see the similarity here between Jacob and his sons. But not just Jacob and his sons. Also we see Isaac who deceived Abimelech out of self-protection and Abraham who deceived Pharaoh and another Abimelech out of self-protection. This is the sin of the fathers. But there's an added element to the deception of the sons of Jacob. And it's not only what they're going to do with the deception. They're using circumcision, the sign of the covenant, at the heart of their deception. They're profaning it. This is tantamount to blasphemy. They're dishonoring God and his covenant. I think there's a warning here for us as well. Do you profane holy things? Do you use what God has set apart for your own benefit, for your own advantage. So think of, of outward obedience for the sake of self-righteousness. as taking a, a holy thing and using it for your own benefit or parading doctrinal understanding for the sake of pride or, or using the church without giving of yourself to the church. They're all examples of profaning holy things. And then in verses 18 to 24, Hamor and Shechem agree. They take the bait. They didn't delay, but are immediately circumcised. And again, we're told that Shechem was motivated by delight in Dinah. And then they went to the city gate and they explained to the men of the city, these men are at peace with us. Now that's an ironic statement if ever there's been one. They, they, they relay the terms of the agreement to the men of the city. They say if, that if, 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 if you, that we can enter into relationship with them, that, that we can give their daughters, take their daughters for our wives, and we can take, take our daughters and give them to them as wives, and, and we can dwell with them and, and trade with them. They can dwell in the land, trade in it. After all, as he's saying, it's, lar it's large enough. Only let's intermarry with them. He paints a pretty sweet picture here. But then there's the condition that every one of us must be circumcised, even as they are circumcised, that we will become one people. So, and then again, he, then he highlights the, the benefits. Again, this is, we're talking here about, about a really good salesman. So he, he gives the bait, then he throws in the bit of the hook, and then he sweetens the pot again. He's saying, everything that we have, or that they have, is going to be ours. 
Will not their livestock, their property, all their beasts be ours? So now we're getting the whole story. Now we're finding out that, that some of this is, is motivated economically. And the men of the city are convinced that they buy what's being sold. And all the men of the city are circumcised. Then look what happens next in verses 25 to 29. As Jacob's sons commit mass murder and pillage the city. Hamor had told the people that the men were peaceable, how wrong he was. They all practice the circumcision. Then when they're sore, they're incapacitated. Now it's one thing to practice circumcision on a young child but, but these men would have been unable to defend themselves. Simon and Levi came into the city, swords in hand, and killed every single man. Simon and Levi were Dinah's eldest full brothers, and they took the responsibility of avenging her and of restoring her reputation. They recaptured Dinah from Shechem's house and left. Then the other sons joined in the violation by plundering the city and taking the women and the children and taking everything that was in the city. Now their behavior here is, is far worse than, than anything that Shechem had done. It's, what Shechem had done is, is deplorable. It's, it's, it's one of the most wicked sins that there is, but, but these men had multiplied it many times over by committing murder, after murder, after murder, cold-blooded murder. It's also far worse than anything that, that Jacob had done. Remember, the, the disputes with, with Esau and, and with, with Laban had ended in peaceful agreements. This is not righteous anger. This does not produce the righteousness of God. Far from it. There's a wordplay here on the word took. In the description of, the, of their deed. And it's the same word that's used that Shechem took Dinah in, in verse 2. They, they took their swords, they took Dinah, and they took the, the city's plunder. And we're left wondering, is this story about, about the rape of Dinah or about the rape of the city of Shechem? This punishment does not fit the crime. The bitter irony here is that the men of Shechem wanted everything, but they lost everything, even their very lives. Now it's true that Israel was not to intermarry with the Canaanites, and it's true that they would be called later on to destroy them in war, but not yet. This is no act of war. This is cold-blooded murder. This is not motivated by zeal for the Lord, but by vengeance. It's vengeance. And God's word through the oracle of Jacob on his deathbed gives the indictment against Simeon and Levi. Genesis 49, 5-7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is, cu it is cruel. O divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Donald Gray Barnhouse says, says that, that, that what they had done here, what the, the sons of Jacob had done here in this, this blasphemous using the, the, the sign of the covenant as a centerpiece to their deception had, had defiled everyone. 
The sign of the covenant was appropriated by Shechem to gratify his lust, by Hamor to increase his cattle, by the sons of Jacob as a cover for murder, that the sons of Jacob had taken what God had given as a holy religious sign and used it for their own wicked ends. Just think for a second about, about how far you would go to protect someone you love. Would you go to a point of sinning to protect a loved one? We all have to realize that the temptation would be there if, if God forbid, any of us in this congregation have to face something like this, but, but you can see the temptation. But if you're willing to sin, even to protect a loved one, then that's another idol. It reveals idolatry in your heart. We should not be doing anything beyond what God's word allows in response to, to whatever situation we face. Some of us have to admit that, that, that we will sin for far less, far less than what has happened here. And finally, in verses 30, and 31, Jacob rebukes them. Now we're expecting a rebuke from Jacob. It's been a long time coming. But when it does come, it's not what you'd expect. Jacob simply says, You brought trouble on me by making me stink in the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. He says that because of what you've done, I am no longer at peace with the men of the country. He fears for his safety. There, there's no rebuke here for the murder. No rebuke for, for, the, for the, the, the plundering of the city and for the, taking all the, the, the people captive, all the, the women and children that remained alive. This is just peevishness. Now, it's not implausible that, that he was put at risk because of this. In fact, we'll read in chapter 35, verse 5, that it's, it's only by, by God imposing terror in the heart of the Canaanites did, did Jacob escape from, from the hands of the Canaanites after this. He says, you've made me a stink. I, I just wanted to live at peace here. This word stink is like the foul odor um, emanating from a dead fish. You, you've made me a stench in their, in their nostrils. What is God's response to this? Where, where is the, the father of this clan in bringing down the word of God, the judgment of God? Yes, it will come, but not until his deathbed. Kinder's words here are poignant. The appeaser and the avengers mutually exasperated and swayed respectively by fear and fury were perhaps equidistant from true justice. They exemplify two perennial but sterile reactions to evil. Do you see that? There, there's a middle ground here. And Jacob is at one extreme, and the sons of Jacob are at the other. And they both failed miserably. Both groups have failed miserably. Simeon's and Levi's treachery and unrepentance magnify their, their sin as they, as they indignantly defy their father's rebuke. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? 
No, of course not. And, and Jacob should have dealt with that back at the beginning. But in exacting vengeance, not just on Shechem, but, but on all the men of the city, they are, are multiplying their sin. They, they'd interpreted this, this offer of money from Dana's hand as, as, a, as, a, as prostitution, as an, as an invitation to prostitution. And so they lecture their father, implying that, that he has failed to defend the honor of the family, and he has. But now they're adding to their sin, adding to their guilt by dishonoring their father. And this is, this is a horrible chapter. Chapter 34 is a horrible chapter. One of the, one of the, the most ugly chapters in, in all of Genesis, if not the whole Bible. It, it begins with the moral atrocity of, of Jacob's daughter being raped by the prince of Shechem and, and ends even worse with the mass murder of the entire population of the city by Jacob's son, Simeon Levi, and then the rest of them joining in to pillage the city. Again, the covenantal promises of God seem to be at risk, more so by the behavior of the, the members of the covenant than by those outside the covenant. And Jacob has responded with seeming apathy. The behavior of his sons are, are more reprehensible than that of the wicked Canaanites surrounding them. It leaves us to wonder, again, if, if this, is, this story is really about the rape of Dinah or if it's about the rape of, of Shechem. It's ugly. It's awful. There, there, there are no heroes in this story, apart from one. There is no hero in your story either, apart from one. Now, maybe you haven't actually committed murder, but have you committed murder in your heart? Maybe you haven't actually committed adultery but have you committed adultery in your heart? We need to realize that we are all guilty of the same sins of the, the characters in this narrative. All of us. Yes, to a lesser degree, but we are all guilty. And your only hope, like the only hope of the sons of Israel, like the only hope of the people who first received this, is the one hero of this story. In this story, the grace of God is on display. We're going to see it manifested as these chapters go on in the lives of the sons of Jacob, just as we have seen God's grace magnified in the life of Jacob. Just as we've seen that the gracious forgiveness that God has, has set his love on Jacob, that God forgave Jacob and God sanctified Jacob, we're going to see the same type of thing happening in the lives of the, of the sons of Jacob. They're going to get up to a lot more evil before we get to the end of Genesis. But God's grace is greater than their evil. And we're also going to see how, how God will even sanctify them. Yes, in the, in the midst of, 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 of very difficult circumstances, but as we saw 
with Jacob, we'll see with the sons of Jacob that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. The story is not over for the sons of Jacob. And the, and the, the God who is the hero of the story will bring it to a good and fitting conclusion. He will execute justice, perfect, holy wrath. Every sin, every sin that is ever committed will be dealt with by God. You do not need to take justice into your own hands to execute vengeance. Commit it to the Lord. Commit the sins against you to the Lord. And even more importantly, commit your sins to the Lord. Commit your sins to the Lord. God's grace is greater even than your sin. Yes, His wrath will be poured out. It will be poured out on everyone. It will be poured out for every sin, either on their own heads or it will be taken by Jesus Christ on the cross. Who for our sake became sin who knew no sin so that in Him we could be the righteousness of God. The sons of Jacob find forgiveness in Christ. Jacob has found forgiveness in Christ. Have you found forgiveness in Christ? Have you experienced God's grace for your sin? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we see the ugliness of sin. But Lord, let us not stop by considering the ugliness of the things that have taken place here. But Lord, let this passage be a mirror that shows us our sin. Let this law be the schoolmaster that drives us to Christ. And for so many here who have already found forgiveness in Christ, help us, Lord, to be reminded afresh of this glorious forgiveness that we have received in Christ. But for those who are here who are not yet born again, we pray that you would help them Lord, to flee the wrath to come, to turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ. That your wrath would be poured out on your son, was poured out on your, on your son instead of on them. That they might find life and peace and joy in following you. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen.